listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. When I first started thinking about launching this podcast last year, there was a handful of people that I knew I wanted to be a guest on the show, not just because they're very interesting people, but because they've made significant contributions to this field of leadership anxiety and family systems theory. And that absolutely describes today's guest. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Creech. Uh, Robert is the Professor of Pastoral Leadership, and he's also the Director of Pastoral Ministries at Truett Seminary, which is part of Baylor University in Waco. Uh, Robert wrote a book with Jim Harrington and Tricia Taylor, I think it was about 12 years ago, maybe 15 years ago now, called The Leader's Journey. Many of us have read and greatly benefited from that book. It's actually coming out in a second revised edition Uh, next year. But Robert just recently released a book, and I'm about a third of the way through it now, and it's a fantastic book. If you're looking for a good primer to get into systems theory, how to begin to apply it, I'd recommend Robert's book. It's called Family Systems and Congregational Life, A Map for Ministry. It's helpful, it's fun, it's uh, freeing. Robert begins the book by talking about the difference between acute and chronic anxiety, This is a key piece of Bowen theory. So that's how I started the interview, asking him if he could explain what's the difference between acute anxiety and chronic anxiety. Anxiety itself is just this automatic response we have to any kind of threat uh, we perceive in our environment. And acute anxiety is response to threat that is a real threat, and it's usually time-limited. Uh, we have to deal with something that is suddenly shows up on our radar as threatening, and uh, we deal with it. Chronic anxiety, on the other hand, uh, is the condition that we are responding in the same sort of way physiologically and emotionally, but the threat is either exaggerated or it's imagined. And it's a we live in a chronic state of anxiety all the time, some ambient level of that all of the time based on really our level of differentiation and our uh, capacity to manage our, our reactions to uh, to others and to our environment. So if someone were listening to this and they would say to you, I'm not an anxious person, I don't worry as a habit and I'm not afraid of much, how would you help them understand the chronic anxiety they might be carrying? Yeah, um, anxiety is one of those words that means a lot of different things to in common usage, and Bowen uses it really uh, technically. It is a set of physiological responses that are going on all the time as we are taking in uh, the way that others are, the way we perceive others are reacting to us, um, how much the people we're dependent on are being dependable, and who's depending on us, and um, whose approval are we seeking, and who's who do we wish to approve or who are we disapproving? Who's in experiencing some sort of uh, distress and do we move toward that? Or am I in distress and is anyone noticing me? There's just dozens of things in our environment we are unconsciously uh, taking in, responding to. And the response is more than just uh, worry. It is, you know, it's the sweat response in our palms it's our digestive system it's our heart rate and blood pressure uh, our body whole body responds uh, to all of that automatically 
And um, so anxiety is just that response to our environment. And there are no non-anxious people in the world, in cemeteries perhaps, but not in uh, <laughs> walking around. Uh, we are always are living with some level of uh, response to our environment that involves some level of anxiety, I suppose. And some people have really high levels of, of chronic anxiety and others uh, more moderate. And that's part of the scale of differentiation that Murray Bowen talked about. Yeah. So Murray Bowen, obviously the founder of systems theory, he created the eight concepts uh, or he really had eight different concepts. Some people would say he had nine at the, you know, toward the end of his life. Uh, one of the concepts that we've not covered on this show that you write so well about is societal regression. Societal regression. Would you mind explaining what that is? Okay. Um, that was the last concept Bowen added to his theory. And in the 1970s, he was invited by the Environmental Protection Agency to present a paper to some um, major gathering of theirs. <clears throat> and he he was noticing, he had noticed over the years that society seems to do better at times and worse at times in terms of uh, symptoms, things like drug abuse and uh, marital stability. And he had, he had looked at a lot of things. He didn't have access to the internet to do that with at the time, obviously, but he had followed court cases and newspaper reports and such things as that. And he had come to believe that uh, our, our, our country, our culture, uh, is in a state of what he called regression. And what he he saw that was a parallel between the way a family may move into a regression as anxiety increases, and then the family develops symptoms, and then the symptoms make them more anxious, and it becomes a downward spiral. And he believed those same processes were observable in society at large. Uh, this was in the 1970s, and he predicted... Uh, that we would not pull out of that regression until the middle part of the 21st century. And that um, those who survived the regression would be a very different kind of human being in one particular aspect. And that was in relationship of all things to the natural world. Uh, he believed that the thing that generated and started the regression uh, was a separation between human beings and the natural world. And we began at a lower than conscious level to understand that um, we no longer had frontiers to conquer, populations increasing, uh, all of these things were going on. And the symptoms that began showing up in the 60s and 70s, things like uh, the Vietnam War and the protest against it and uh, sexual revolution, many other things, he saw those as symptomatic uh, of our anxiety as a society. Of course, they produce their own, I mean, the symptoms contribute to the anxiety over time. We get anxious about what's going on. Uh, he was pretty perceptive about these things. He knew nothing about climate change and um, global warming or any of those sorts of things. Uh, but I, I think science and some history has kind of proved him right about some things. And so he said, uh, those symptoms that show up in a regressed society uh, are like symptoms that show up in a family that's going through regression. Basically, society behaves, we behave on a societal level just like we do on a family level. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, with your take on Bowen theory, you really focus on this creation care, environmentalism. You mentioned Wendell Berry. I, I've not read that much in the Bowen theory that I've been exposed to. I think that's a unique contribution you've made there. 
Uh, he, I don't think societal regression gets uh, written about much. We have, especially uh, for clergy, we have tended to move very quickly to the question of uh, leadership uh, and what this implies about leadership and managing ourselves in congregations. But um, I think it's important to take the whole theory uh, in and uh, wonder about how these other concepts apply to what we're doing in congregational life. Yeah, it's it's uh, fascinating because you also write about, you know, you talk about how Bowen measured societal regression from the 1940s to 1972. You then pick up 21st century and you just make a very brief list of everything that's happened since the year 2000, where we have exponentially become more anxious. And here we are in 2019, I think a lot of people who don't even know anything about Bowen theory they know that we are a much more anxious society than we were oh, yeah. even 20 years ago. We are so um, driven by our fears and worries and anxiety and our reactivity to each other and to what's going on. Um, it just, I mean, right now it's, you know, it's kind of an obvious thing. Bowen was picking up on that when it was not so easy uh, to um, document, but you just got to watch uh, an hour's worth of cable news and you've got, you've got your documentation. Well, and I think that's where your work really helps faith leaders, whether they're clergy or just people of faith who lead an organization, is you are helping us uh, lead in the midst of an overwhelmingly anxious culture. Uh, I pulled one of the quotes from your book, Robert. You wrote, anxious systems look for leaders who will provide palliative care, alleviating the pain of the symptoms without addressing the underlying anxiety with long-term solutions. I think there's pastors everywhere that are shaking their head right now when they hear that. Would you say more about that? Yeah. I, we just, when we get anxious, we just want the pain to stop. And that's what we want. And so whether it's in a congregation or a presidential election, if somebody can promise to us, they can make the pain stop. We're willing to um, follow them for a time. And when it becomes obvious they can't, we'll discard them and look for somebody else who will. But the solutions are likely to be not pain-free, and they're going to be long-term. Uh, we can't make uh, global warming, for example, go away and its effects without some really painful long-term changes. And we don't have uh, any leaders uh, right now with an appetite to uh, insist on that, and certainly not uh, people who are ready to take that leadership and follow it. They'll, we'll look for somebody who can, you know, uh, science in many ways and technology got us into this mess, and we think that science and technology is going to get us out. There's going to be a discovery tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, that will uh, solve all the problems. And really, the problems are likely to require severe life change on the part of human beings on this planet. And we don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. Uh, well, and I suppose if we take it from that political level and we bring it down to, let's say, a church and individual local church level, you're writing about the same challenge where churches have slowly gotten into problems that are going to take long-term solutions. What, do you, what are you finding in clergy nowadays, the pressures they're facing, the pressures from within themselves and from within their congregations? Well, um, I serve regularly as an interim pastor while I'm uh, teaching at the seminary. And um, 
I've, I've had a couple of experiences where you have anxious, fairly anxious congregations who, you know, the pastors left for whatever reason, and they want their, there's a, they put pressure on their search committee to get a new person in there right away because primarily they're anxious about what it means not to have um, a senior pastor. And part of my task as interim pastor is to um, sort of provide some space for that search committee to do its work carefully and thoughtfully and to take its time. And uh, I found that, you know, that's in my head when I go uh, into a role like that to serve. And when congregations calm down a little bit, um, then they just, they can wait. And sometimes that's one thing is just like replacing a pastor that just can't be done too quickly, especially in larger congregations, I've noticed, uh, but probably in smaller ones too, and depending on other things like how <clears throat> the tenure of the previous pastor and mm. uh, the conditions under which they departed. Um, but also, you know, you start to look, you look at the ministries of a congregation, especially in a city, uh, if they're in an area, a city that has changed rapidly, uh, sociologically one way or another, um, they want to keep doing the things that they have done in the past. And it's probably going to be some longer term, more thoughtful strategies that are going to be required to deal with the changed environment. Uh, and all of our environments have changed. I mean, even if it's not changing socioeconomically, we've certainly changed culturally so that uh, churches in a booming suburban area, for one thing, uh, are dealing with more and more people whose uh, way of thinking does not include faith. And uh, they're going to be more and more challenged to uh, minister and to communicate to an environment like that. And that quick fixes like changing your style of music or um, having the pastor wear skinny jeans just aren't going to solve the problem long-term of what it you means to minister, minister in a, a place. I'm sorry. As an interim pastor, you've not tried skinny jeans as the solution yet? Not yet. Uh, I haven't, <laughs> haven't written it off. but <laughs> I appreciate that openness, yeah. Maybe yeah. it is the actually magic bullet. Maybe, it may be maybe, so. I mean, yeah. Paul's, I became all things to all people. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Well, and you mentioned people having um, not having the same faith, and I think one of the unique challenges we're facing nowadays is people have a shared faith, but it means a very different thing to them than it might to you. So people come in saying they have a faith in Jesus, but what that faith looks like and their assumptions about it has radically changed even in the last five years. And when you have churches that are older churches uh, full of you know people people my age, I'm sixty six my age and older, uh, it, that's a real challenge to them to uh, even think about the fact that in some way expressions of faith have changed uh, because for them that doesn't change. And so yeah. the anxiety is going to be very high. And they're anxious about, we don't have enough young people in our church. We don't have enough kids. We don't have young adults. Uh, what are we going to do? And then, you know, sort of the, fine print in the contract is, you know, we want a pastor who will help us reach these people we're not reaching, and we will do everything in our power to keep that from happening. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> right. mean, that's the resistance there. It's, it's a very, it can be a pretty anxious time yeah. th these days.
Hey, Brennan Reed here, uh, producer of this podcast. Hey, if you know of a college-age student or 20-something who really wants to explore what ministry is like, they should consider spending a year with us at Discovery Christian Church out here um, in the Front Range of Colorado. My experience with this residency was I wasn't just getting coffee. I actually got to be a part of the church staff, and that meant that I had a voice in meetings. Um, I even got the opportunity to build a ministry from the ground up that Discovery did not have during my residency. And out here, we really uh, try to reach intellectual skeptics as well as followers of Jesus. And we're very passionate about engaging the chronic needs of our city and the world around us. Residents spend a year with us and they take a class that dives into the material of this podcast. They also take on leadership responsibility. And you come away with a tangible ministry experience to set yourself up for a career in vocational ministry. Uh, So as a resident, you get to choose a specialty. We have youth, children's, worship arts, communications, preaching and adult discipleship. We also have local and global outreach and executive pastor work. We do provide housing with a family and we offer a small stipend. To apply, click the link in the show notes or you can visit dc2.me, click the about tab and choose our residency. Well, I think that brings us to differentiation, and um, we've discussed differentiation on this show. But in my experience, uh, I, you know, I've taught systems theory for probably intentionally taught it for eight years now, and so I'm still on the young end of teaching it. But all of my students, almost without exception, really struggle with differentiation. It feels to them like it's this nebulous hard to get a hold of thing. They need a few shots at it. So I'd love to hear your take on it, how you help people get into what it is. Okay. <clears throat> um, I, I have collected um, definitions either from Bowen and other writers and people I've heard. There are just so many ways that people use to describe that. Uh, as a, And I would say, I would describe it more as a process than a state. I don't think anybody just goes out and gets differentiated and then they're differentiated from that on. Yeah. It is a direction one takes with one's life of trying to be more aware of uh, my own reactivity to others and then learning to find ways of managing that so that I don't get um, just run on automatic all the time. Uh, it is, trying to observe the reactivity in a system that I'm a part of and ask questions about what's my part in this and uh, how can I change my part and uh, what's my responsibility here. It's an effort to uh, be much more self-aware of what's going on inside of you and taking responsibility for that. Um, In a given situation, when I notice my own anxiety spiking for something, um, the better I act out of differentiation, the more I'm able to say, am I really being threatened right now? If not, then let's calm down. And, you know, the practice of various spiritual disciplines I find to be a really useful way uh, to work on uh, differentiation is I think that differentiation helps me work on spiritual uh, maturity, I think in some ways. Um, But it is, it's the capacity to know uh, what you believe and what's negotiable in your life and what's not. It's a capacity under pressure from others to conform 
to what they are demanding uh, to stand with your own principles in a time like that calmly and staying in touch with those people. Um, it's a, it is a little difficult thing to just give a one simple definition and say, there, that's it. But it's easier to think in terms of what would a, a well-differentiated life look like? And that's kind of how I try to describe in the book um, preaching and pastoral care and leadership at higher and lower levels of differentiation. Um, one of the most useful things for a person to read on that, I think, is uh, in Murray Bowen's book, Family, Practice, uh, Family Therapy and Clinical Practice. He's got in places where he just describes people lives lived at various quadrants, zero to 25 on a scale, 25 to 50, 50, 75, 75 to 100. And he just sort of describes what life lived in those quadrants might look like. And um, that's somewhat better description for me than uh, just a, you know, a textbook definition, perhaps. Yeah, for those who are unfamiliar, Bowen claims that there's a zero to 100 scale of differentiation. Right. You know, Robert, where things get interesting for me is Bowen made the claim almost like we're born into a – I'm co-opting Bowen, but he he would almost say that we were born into a differentiation caste system where we can't really get much more than 10 points higher or lower than our family of origin. I would love to hear your take as a follower of Jesus if you think the gospel can invade that because in my life I would say – I was I came out of a fairly low differentiated family system as I became an adult, and I th- I think the gospel has had profound impact on my level of differentiation. I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I've thought a lot about that, Steve. Um, there's a chapter in the book on uh, spiritual formation and differentiation of self, and a chapter on Jesus and differentiation of self. Uh, Bowen said that. He said, we've probably never met anybody. It's unlikely we've ever met anybody over 50 on the scale. There may be a few individuals in the 50 to 75 range, but uh, the 100 on the scale, which he said was reserved, and the way he put it was for that perfect individual. And so it was totally theoretical. I mean, he said, it, there's nobody in history that's done that. Well, our Christian theology actually affirms that Jesus is not only fully God, but that he's fully human, and none of us are. And so it struck me that, you know, it, it might be useful to look at Jesus' life and see uh, what evidence there is of a high level of differentiation. And turns out, even though the gospel writers had no intention of uh, illustrating that, uh, one thing after another in his life does illustrate that. Yeah. And <clears throat> so that raised a question for me about is work on differentiation related to work on Christ likeness or spiritual formation? And what we have in the gospel that Bowen did, Bowen was a scientist, and so the idea of grace or sin, either one, are irrelevant issues for him. Those aren't scientific Uh categories. Uh, But we do have access to um, an understanding of God's grace and God's intention for us in Christ. And I do think it is possible by grace and effort uh, to... uh, to advance more than the few points that Bowen thought possible on the merely human effort on the scale. I, but I would also say that advancing a few points makes a heck of a lot of difference in our lives. Um, the illustration I like to use is uh, a baseball player that one that bats 
lifetime batting average of 250 is going to be a mediocre player. They're not likely to be in the Hall of Fame. They're not going to make the highest salaries. A player that bats 350 lifetime will be Hall of Fame. They play for whoever they want to, and they get to name their own salary. But the difference in their performance is the second guy just gets one more hit in every 10 times at bat yeah. than the first guy. Yeah. And that that's encouraging to me is that there's a huge difference made with a little bit of improvement on performance. Yeah. And if um, to be able um, to be, I think of it like that is if one time in 10, I can be a little more present to those important people in my life, a little less anxious, a little less reactive to their reactivity. I'm going to be, it's going to be good for me and good for them. It's uh, it's very spooky to hear you say that because um, early on when I was teaching, I, I found my students who are very perfectionist minded, they would get these tools. They, they would learn differentiation, they'd start the path and they'd fail more than they'd succeed. They've become self-aware, but they haven't built their differentiation muscle. And they, as perfectionists, they would then just use that as another opportunity to condemn themselves. They'd say, well, I should know better by now. And uh, it's spooky to hear you talk about baseball because I actually started teaching them, listen, like even as an Australian, I'm still coming to understand baseball, but a professional baseball batter can bat 300 and get paid millions of dollars for 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 failing more than he succeeds. And so therefore, as you're saying, just a little bit of improvement can bring tremendous relief to a person inside. Yeah. And and Bowen said that too. Bowen said that the quality of life that is found in a just a small increase in the level of differentiation is is a remarkable uh, thing. And I uh so you know um I find myself trying to illustrate some of these things with stories out of my own life and uh, in ministry. And uh, I'll, I often introduce that, say on a good day, you know, this is, this is how Robert's able to, uh, to behave. And I have good days, but, but I don't bat 350 yet. Yeah, (laughs) that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I, we also encourage our students to watch movies. I, I found differentiation is really helpful when you can see it on a screen. Mm. Um, I'm springing this on you, but does, does any movie or TV show come to mind when you look at a character and you say, okay, that's a differentiated, that's a well-differentiated That's individual. a great question. I, um, I tend to notice that more in biographies and things, uh, you know, to watch um, the life of, say, Martin Luther King Jr. Or I, I don't have a... a movie that's coming to my mind right now uh, gosh uh, but I do notice that in novels and biographies um, just read in a class that I taught we read together a biography of uh, autobiography of Samuel uh, Proctor who was Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, mentor in many ways very active in the civil rights movement in the U.S., he was involved with government, and he was a Baptist pastor. <clears throat> uh, he's about my parent; would have been my parents' age. Mm. But I would just—it was just remarkable to read uh, his his dis- very thoughtful, principle-based decisions that he made as an African American man growing up in the Jim Crow era, uh, and then into civil rights. Uh, it was it really stuck out to me to see mm-hmm. that, um, but I hadn't thought about the movies. 
I'll have to give that some more thought. Oh uh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I I think. I think when people hear differentiation, they can sometimes think it's a leader that stands alone, which is definitely in our culture highly prized. So if, if you don't mind, I'll just testify. Differentiation for our listeners is not someone who's alone. It's somebody who's principled but still connected to people. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just say a, a great movie. My, my first take would be the movie Spotlight. If anyone's ever seen Spotlight, it's the true story of the Boston Globe exposing the Catholic uh, abuse scandal in the early 2000s. I like that movie as an example because almost there's probably three characters who are all having to practice differentiation. Uh, and you can see it through the whole journey. And I like it because it's also a true story. It's not a, you know, not a fiction. Martin Luther King is an incredible example. His, his ability to be well-defined and connected to even his enemies and even those who are out to attack him. I, th- I think he was a phenomenally differentiated person. John Perkins, one of King's associates. Yeah. Um, John Lewis as well, who marched on Selma. That They actually taught differentiation without knowing it, I think. Right. And that's yeah. one of the things Bowen said. He didn't invent differentiation himself. Uh, he just observed it and uh, tried to give label, you know, try to label it so that we could see it. Uh and I do, I do know that and Bowen talked about um, basic self and functional self, but it, meaning that there are sometimes we function at a higher level in certain contexts uh, than, for example, people may find it possible to be very well differentiated or fairly well differentiated in their work environment or in their leadership at church or in some cause and and do less well in their home uh, and find themselves more reactive to the people in their family, which are the most intense relationships in our life. And that's why that's probably the best place to go to work on this is not congregational life. You work on different, I, I tell people it's talk about movies. It's like uh, the Lord of the Rings. It's, um, you know, the place you do this is you have to go to Mount Doom. You have to go, <laughs> to go to back the, to Mount Doom. You, you got to go where the where the ring was forged, yeah. you know, if you're going to work on it. And so uh, to work on differentiation, you return to your parents, your home and your your new, your own nuclear family, because those are the most intense relationships. And if you can learn to function as an adult, a principled adult, calmly and still connected to mom and dad or to your spouse and children, you can do fine with people in the congregation. Uh but that's that, the more intense relationships. That's a, I think that's a great, very tangible piece of advice. If people want to be healthier leaders, yeah, go back to Mount Doom, go, go back to your family of origin, and th- it's, that work will pay off in every other aspect of your life. That's really helpful. Well, Robert, uh, I'm sorry to warn you that it's time to inflict upon you my gauntlet of questions on anxiety. Okay. So if you brace yourself like a man, I've had this described as somewhere between a roller coaster ride and a proctological exam. Okay. Uh, yeah. So in, this, <laughs> in the spirit of that, I'm going to ask six questions. Feel free to pass or play on, on all of them or none of them. Okay. Uh, you know, you hold the power. But okay. I, I found this is really helpful for our listeners as people come on and they share their own anxiety. So we always begin with the physiology of anxiety. You've hinted at that. Um, between a spinning mind and a racing heart and a tightening gut, 
where would you say anxiety begins for you? Tightening gut. Would you say more about that? Well, I just know that's the place I, I just sort of notice it first. I don't get um, confused in my thinking for right away or fearful with a racing heart, but I just, there's just a sense in my gut that this is not the way I want things to be. <laughs> and, okay. And I, yeah, I felt that physiological uh, experience lots of times. Very good. You, we mentioned at the very top of the episode, chronic anxiety. Uh, I believe one of the ways you can start to identify chronic anxiety is when uh, you're not getting what you believe you need in any given moment. You don't actually need it, but you believe you need it, and so you become chronically anxious. Uh, would you be able to name something that you believe you need in any given moment? Sometimes for guests, I have to give an example. I'm not, I don't know if that would be helpful or if this makes sense right away for you. Well, uh, one of the things that comes to my mind is I, I have adult children, and um, I can find myself um, what I deeply want for them. I have no control over providing, and, uh, and I, with a couple of them in particular, there are things I pray about and want and desire for them, and just the, coming to terms with the reality that I can't make that happen. Um, that I think that's anxiety producing in me and finding a way to deal with that um, in prayer and theology is important to me. Yeah. But uh, my mind can dash off toward one of those characters real easy. Yeah. That's a good example. Yeah. Another source of anxiety that I think is common to all leaders and also all parents is every mistake we make is a public mistake. We, we live our lives vulnerably and in front of people. And therefore, the way we respond to making a mistake really helps us with our long-term leadership health. Mm. So I wonder if you'd be willing to share a recent mistake you've made and what you did to recover from it. Uh, I, I realized that after a conversation with one of my uh, female colleagues that I had used an expression that probably 20 years ago would probably not have been offensive but that could be in our current context. And I had no more stepped out the door of her office and gotten down the sidewalk than it dawned on me, the, the gut thing. And I turned around and went back in and offered an apology. And she said it was fine. She just thought it was funny. Uh, and, but nevertheless, that kind of stuck with me even after apologizing, just to realize that there are these automatic responses that are hardwired into me that come out without thinking uh, and um, a more thoughtful person in that moment would have uh, expressed himself differently. Mm. And uh, which, you know, that that's sort of running on automatic kind of thing. So um, that's been fairly resonant in the last couple of weeks. I tell you why I love that example is I, I think it's a great example of how you're ongoing working on self-differentiation because I think the tendency of a lot of leaders is to hide their mistakes. Or To me, it's Genesis 3. We hide or we blame when yeah. we're exposed. But you actually, in that story, you just mentioned it briefly. You used your source of anxiety as a trigger to go work on recovery rather than avoid. Like you said, oh, I noticed that thing in my gut, so I immediately walked back. 
that's I think that's just a helpful tool that that anxiety can actually become an asset once you get yeah. the hang of it. Well, you're not going to get rid of it, so it might as well be your ally, you know, in some way or another. Um, but there, again, we don't ever become not not anxious people. We become increasingly able to manage our anxiety and our reactivity, and uh, take responsibility for our reactions and be more thoughtful instead of automatic. Uh, but you know, it's you know the thing that dawns on you in a time like that is that's not in line with my principles. That's not in line with the kind of person I want to be. Mm. And so I, I do think correcting that to whatever degree is possible is and owning that that's I acted outside my professed principles, uh, and um, I'd like to get things lined up a little better. Yeah, thanks for that. That's that's a great example. Uh, I think this is going to be a low ball for you, Robert, but um, okay. for our listeners, we're also helping them understand that anxiety is always contagious in a group. And oftentimes, uh, the most anxious person in a room can have the most power unless a leader is differentiated. Uh, would you mind just sharing a recent example of where you've seen anxiety be contagious in a group of people? Yeah, anxiety is contagious. Actually, just about everything is <laughs> contagious. But uh the church I'm currently serving as interim pastor uh, uh, has, in addition to their pastor leaving February a year ago, uh, has had two other staff members retire, one in February, one in March, after long tenures there. Nothing surprising. Those were planned. And then another staff member uh, accept a call from his, his church in Texas to a church in Indiana. But it was the church. It's, it's his wife's family's church. They were married. He and his wife were married there, and they called him to be the lead pastor. And he had been 16 years in this congregation here in Texas. Uh, that wasn't as expected by the congregation, but he held a, a pretty. He was an executive pastor here, and so the anxiety in the congregation has spiked a bit, uh, to say the least. Uh, and we were in a meeting a few weeks ago of key lay leaders and staff. And uh, I think there was one voice in the room that was a little more anxious than the rest. And you could almost visibly see when they were speaking and raising their questions and issues, the attraction of the rest of the room toward to want to calm that person down or tell them it's going to be all right or, or something like that. Um, but there was a re definitely a reaction to the reactivity, you know, not a... Uh, I was surprised what a thoughtful group of people there were in that room that day, but it doesn't take much for, for that to, you know, be tested with somebody's anxiety. I, I think it may have been Ed Friedman said that we tend to get organized around the least mature person in the system. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah that's Friedman. And, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I, I kind of keep an eye out for that is that we don't want to, exclude the least mature person in the system, but they don't need to have the authority that they're often given. Yeah. I think Friedman would suggest that if we really cared for them, we would not coddle them. That right. was part of, and of course, Friedman, <laughs> I think there's a lot of debate over whether he was well differentiated or just cold. <laughs> like he's really, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I remember reading a story where he was speaking at a conference and a lady during the Q and A kept trying to cut to the front of the line and he just basically turned on the whole room because, you know, she was anxious to cut in line. And yeah, I don't know. It's just Friedman's an interesting character for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think another source of anxiety, particularly for a faith leader, 
is I think um, we can conflate our identity with Christ with being an employee of Christ. I know I'm, I'm a lead pastor, and this for me is a constant struggle. I'm a child of God, but I also work for the boss. Yeah. And so um, I found it very helpful to really make sure I'm running in the stream of God's gifts that are just for me and that are not also for my congregation. So these last two questions get to that. Um, would you mind telling us uh, when in your life you feel most fully loved? I'm probably going to take that to family and just say when I'm in the context of my, my children live in three in North Carolina, Alaska, and Houston, and we're never all in the same place at the same time. Or we very seldom are. But when that happens, or even when two out of three of them are present with grandchildren and all, I, I think there's more of a sense of being loved and being in a place of security than probably any other time in my life. Great. Uh, I probably find that there. And then the last question is similar. What activities or places make you feel most fully alive? Mm. And it doesn't have to be all of them. If you just give us a couple of examples. Yeah. Um, truthfully, right where I am at this moment is our farm outside of San Antonio. Um, it's, it's just, it was my grandparents' place. We inherited it about 12 years ago. It's 88 acres is all it is. We've just recently gotten a grant from Texas Parks and Wildlife and re to uh, take it out of agricultural production. We'd had it leased out and to plant native grasses and restore tall grass prairie. Um, we have, my wife and I have been working in our garden out here uh, this week and uh, the wildflowers are just absolutely gorgeous at this place. We went walking in the field yesterday and looking for evidence of the growth of some of those seeds we planted back then. Uh, this is the most life-giving spot on earth for me. And not everybody thinks of South Texas as a, the most beautiful place on earth, but uh, in springtime, it's right up there in the competition. It's, it's been a beautiful place, but this is, it's life-giving for me to be here. Oh, I love uh, that. We'll, we'll retire here in a couple of years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I hear you. And what comes to mind is I think you're making Wendell Berry and Lyle Lovett very proud. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Wendell Berry has been pretty important to me as a thinker. You know, I, I read him first because Eugene Peterson mentioned him in one of his books on pastoral ministry and said, if you want to understand what it means to be a pastor, read Wendell Berry. Mm. And wherever he says land or farm, read congregation. And where he says mm. farmer, read pastor. And so I was reading Barry metaphorically for a while. And then we inherited this place. And suddenly I had land. I was a city boy. I lived in Houston, Texas for 50 years. Uh, and only land I ever take care of was my yard, you know, my lawn. And suddenly I've got near 100 acres that I'm responsible for. And we decided to keep it and then figure out how to care for it. And so Barry became much more literal than metaphorical for me after that. Yeah. Um, so I, I enjoy reading Barry a lot. He challenges me so much. Yeah, he's a good he's a good voice. If you want to oh. read, a, if you want to read a a good definition of um, differentiation of self, you might read his poem, "The Mad Farmer's Liberation Front." That would be one. But there are several of his poems that sort of express, uh, or the contrariness of the mad farmer. That would be another one. But. Uh, I think Barry is one of the better differentiated figures in our culture right now. 
Yeah, that's a good word. I'll put a link to that poem in our uh, show notes for the episode. Okay. And of course, I'd mentioned uh, the book at the top of the episode too. So for our listeners, I'll be putting Robert's book in the show notes as well. It's, it's, it's such a great treatment of systems theory, particularly for any faith leaders. Even though, Robert, you're writing for Congregational Life, I really do think it's a book that's helpful for any person of faith who's leading an organization. There's a lot I of principles there. I think it could be there. helpful. Yeah. Also, if I could put another plug in, uh, Baker Academic, who published that book, uh, partnered with Jim Harrington and Trisha Taylor and I to do a second edition of the Leader's Journey, yeah. and that will be out in January of 2020. Yes, uh, thank you for mentioning it. Jim's been on the show. I think we have Trisha coming up in the fall, actually. Good. But uh, the Leader's Journey is another classic in in systems theory. Well, we've added a couple of chapters to that and done some serious revision of it, and so it will be. Uh, I'm really pleased with uh, the upgrade there after a dozen years or Excellent. so on the shelf. Robert, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for coming in from the wildflowers to come and chat with me. Thanks for joining us today. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram from the handle Steve Cusswords. You can also go to stevecusswords.com for more resources. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss. 